Well, good morning, everyone. I'd like to begin with a verse by Riel Khan. He said, It is not that I never mix with men of the world, but really I'd rather amuse myself alone. And so this morning I'd like to speak about solitude, aloneness, seclusion. The Sanskrit term is viveka, that is often translated as seclusion. Is sometimes we use two different words, lonely, with a kind of a negative connotation, and aloneness with a kind of positive connotation. The difference being loneliness includes a kind of anxiety with being alone, and aloneness implies a kind of ease within that solitude. So in this talk, I want to explore the difference between loneliness and aloneness and see if we can experience a quality of connection rather than alienation in those moments in life when we are alone. So consider for a moment, how often are you alone? When was the last time you spent a full day Alone. How did you feel about that day? Was it comfortable, uncomfortable? Was it a relief? Was it, did it create anxiety? What did you do with that day? Was there appreciation for that solitude or did it feel like something was lacking, that it wasn't quite full enough, that we weren't quite good enough or didn't quite, didn't get a date or didn't have a companion? Was there something lacking or was it full? What did you do with that day? Did you do something that really mattered to you? Or was it just spent with television and radio and projects that are always piled up on the desk. The question of solitude asks us to consider how do we fill the spaces in our lives? Do we value a space for solitude? Or do we feel that we have to fill those spaces with lots of contacts, with compulsive busyness, A moment alone, picking up a newspaper and going through it or a magazine that we've already read before. Is it difficult to be alone with ourselves? Or is there a quality of joy and appreciation in that simple contact with ourselves? What about our relationships? Do our relationships protect the solitude of each other? Or do they just fill each other's lives with more things to do or more interactions? Do we go from one relationship to the next or do we allow space between contacts? How densely have we organized our life? 
Sometimes we fill our lives with one activity after another, whether it's the weekend or the work day, whether it's winter, summer, spring, or fall. If we were to describe our lives, describing how we spend our days, would that description sound like a schedule? Or would it sound like the life that we want to be living? In these last two years when I was in New Mexico, I had the privilege of living in a very vast and open landscape. How many people have been to New Mexico? Oh, most of you, or many of you. If not, how many people in New Mexico or Arizona? (laughs) Kind of looks similar. It's open, spacious, vast, big, big, big skies. If you climb up a mountain and look out, it's as though one can look as far as the eye can see, which feels quite far at that altitude, actually. There's a sense of spaciousness, of aridness, of dryness. Um, even the, and the density, there isn't a density of life because there's so little water, of course, there that the nature can't support a density of life. So grasses are spaced apart. Trees are spaced apart. There isn't a, a, the only place where you'll find any density of vegetation would be right along a creek. And even then, not nearly as dense or as lush as one might find in California. And it was, a, it was a joy to live in a landscape like that for some time because within myself, I would feel that the spaciousness within myself was touched. That environment would resonate with the quality within. And it was quite a transition when I first went there because I was living here, and we go through a certain pace of life, hardly noticing that it's about 40 times more busy than another place. <laughs> So I trotted into New Mexico with a certain expectation of how much one would accomplish in a day. And everybody thought I was totally whacked out, even though I think I'm pretty relaxed here. Um, (laughs) And it it was a real process of slowing down, of finding that just just a lot less, that not so much always has to be accomplished, not so much has to be filled in. There can be just open spaces, open spaces in the nature, open spaces in the mind just to relax the mind, open spaces in the meditation where we're not just focused on technique, open spaces in the relationships in our schedule, just space, open space. I think that sense of the openness of space may be one of the strongest experiences that I've taken from the, um, the time in New Mexico. Um, and for those of you who've spent time in other landscapes, sometimes it's nice just to sense, okay, what does that touch within? What does it resonate within? Many times people are afraid of solitude, afraid of the spaces between things, afraid of quiet, afraid of silence. And I think fundamentally human beings are social creatures. We interact in groups. We know ourselves very often through our relationships and through our interactions with others. I um, One of the things I did when I was in New Mexico is... I had all this time because I was trying to be less busy, right? (laughs) Um, 
Anyway, I used to like to go to the planetarium. The community college had this little planetarium, and they would have a series of lectures. And once a month, they would bring in a scientist from one of the observatories. In, um, in that area, they actually care about the amount of light that is emitted in the evenings, and they have regulations, um, uh, pollution limits, light pollution. So there's only certain kinds of lights you can have outside so that they don't um, pollute the light in the sky. Um, and there's limitations to how much light can be emitted, which is actually quite lovely. So when you walk out of the house in New Mexico, there are stars up there. And not just one or two that are visible. It's just enormous number of stars are visible right in the city. Um, so anyway, there's lots of observatories and there's lots of star parties and people like to look up and, you know, people like to know. I never could remember all of those stars, but I would go to these lectures and try to learn some of the names. And then they would bring in the scientists from these different observatories and different projects to give us lectures on various things, which I always found quite fascinating because I never studied um, astronomy. Um, anyway, so we one time they brought somebody who was a geologist, a moon geologist. And so he was into rock. So he brought all these rocks, not moon, um, Mars geologist. And he was on the team of people who were, who were um, he was the geologist on the team of people who had to choose the site where that, that unmanned probe was going to land and then go around analyzing soil samples and things. So he was the geologist trying to, um, to contribute the geological perspective to where would be the best place for this, um, whatever it's called, um, this equipment to land because they can only, you know, travel so far. So it's that region. I mean, they get a different geological sample if they landed here in the desert or if they landed on some island or if they landed on some you know, someplace else, they get a different sample. So they were trying to figure out where they would more likely get the richest samples. And what the, what the primary interest, of course, was to find water, to see if there was any indication of water in the history of Mars, to find that any, any, any water in rocks. Um, and the reason that that was interesting was it could indicate the existence of, of life occurring on Mars. And what I was struck by was, again, we're looking to see if we're alone. Or was there other organic or water-based life that shared this solar system? Or are we really alone on this one little planet? When we find ourselves alone... I think it's a time to reflect upon what is our experience of aloneness. What is our relationship to ourselves? So that we're not always finding the relationship outside of us. But what is our relationship to ourselves? What does it mean to be a friend to ourselves? And sometimes we approach these questions by taking time in solitude to discover what is that relationship to ourselves. And sometimes it's in solitude that we sense what our relationship is with others because we start to see how we're drawn out or what aspects um, um, wish to be fulfilled. A few years ago, I was uh, doing a meditation retreat that was a personal retreat um, at a center in New York. 
And this is a small center. Um, a couple had some land. They built four cottages on it, and they opened it to anybody who's had previous meditation experience and wants to come and take a cottage and do a private meditation retreat, a personal retreat. So there's no talks. There's no teachers. There's no um, group meditations. People, each Four people each have a different cottage. And so I went in the winter for two months, and um, once a week... Um, she would come and bring a bag of a grocery bag of food, and we'd pick it up at this community spot, uh, this place on the land. But basically, we wouldn't see anybody. And I was there during a really cold winter, um, really, really, really super cold, even colder than they usually have, with deeper snow than even they used to have. And there was no, no nothing that I perceived as a sign of life. There were no flies. I mean, I was wanting to see a fly. <laughs> there were certainly no animals. I didn't see any deer tracks, any rabbit tracks. I didn't see any birds. There was nothing that indicated a sign of life, which was fine, you know, for a while. But then I started to notice that as I was doing my walking meditation, I kept looking out one window more frequently than any other window, and that was the window that was facing the driveway. The possibility that at one point, once a week, somebody might come up that driveway. It wasn't that I needed food. I had plenty of food, you know, it was, and I knew the, the bag of groceries was going to arrive. But there is that almost craving, that pull for the one place where there could be social contact. And so for most of these two months, there was basically no sign of life at all. And I was growing, um, to, to, to reduce the groceries, I was growing like little sprouts, sprouting little seeds and little garbanzo beans and little alfalfa sprouts, and suddenly found this kind of friendship arising with my little sprouts to the point that I felt like I shouldn't eat them. I should just grow them. (laughs) And it was a really good experience for me to see that desire for social contact because I've always had the concept of myself as somebody who is totally comfortable being alone. And yet there was that pull. It was, very, it, was, it was a very important thing for me to see and to see, okay, what is my relationship to solitude, to real solitude? Not just to spending eight hours a day alone, but just to real solitude. I'm in my countdown right now. Not for takeoff, but for diving in. Um, in six days from now, I fly to Massachusetts. And I'm going to enter a meditation retreat for one year at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts. So I have six more days <laughs> of social contact. Um, as I approach this retreat, you know, I'm, I'm spending good time with family and friends. And the, the one thing that everybody is asking me is, is it really silent? How can you go a year in silence? You know, and I explain, well, there are two meetings twice. There's two meetings with the teacher each week, two 10 or 15-minute meetings twice a week. So there could be 20 to 30 minutes of talk with the teacher twice a week. But people don't get that. You know, it's like, you you mean, really? There's no talking. You wouldn't talk to the person who is sitting next to you in a meal. You mean you you wouldn't know the person who is next door to you. 
in terms, and, and verbally I wouldn't, but those of you who've done meditation retreats, you know you know people. Energetically, their patterns, their routines. It would, maybe not socially, maybe not personally. But there can be a kind of fear that people have for going into retreat, fear of the silence. Fear particularly, I, I had a doctor's appointment last week and he was going, there's no way I'd be able to do that. It would be just impossible. Now this doctor does talk a lot during the, um, the session, <laughs> um, but no way. And I could hear him talking to his staff like, no way, I wouldn't make it, I wouldn't make it a day, I wouldn't make it two days. That idea of just spending time in silence is not something that many people in our culture um, uh, expect. There can actually be a kind of discomfort with quietude, even a discomfort with being with ourselves. And sometimes on, so on organized retreats, structured retreats, where we're all sitting together, perhaps in a hall like this, we might find that discomfort with being our being with ourselves, manifesting with um, unusual concern over everybody else. We might see somebody in the hall, have never spoken with them, and know and have decided a whole story about what they're experiencing and what they think and what they think about me and who they are and where they're from and how we'll get along or not get along, whether we like them, whether we don't like them. Basically developing... fabricating not so much really if you look at it we're not so much fabricating a sense of who they are we're fabricating a sense of ourselves through the relationship that we construct through the fantasy of another it's very interesting to see when the mind goes out to another if we're really preoccupied with them or perhaps it's really a sense of self that is arising in relationship. And if we're in a structured environment that doesn't allow a verbal relationship, we can still have a fantasy relationship. A fantasy of who we are in a group. A deeper sense of the silence and the aloneness lets us connect not to the fantasy of who we are and who another is, but to a deeply shared humanity that's just present with being rather than with being what we think we are. When I was in Thailand practicing, I wanted to spend some time alone, and so I went to a very small monastery. I had been practicing at a very large monastery with 400 people. So I went to a very small one where there was, um, I don't remember, five or six people in the whole monastery. And I was given a platform in the forest to stay on. And they didn't have, um, you know, very many kutis because it was a very small monastery, but they had this extra platform. And so it was basically, in Thailand, of course, things are built up on posts because of the common flooding. And so they built up on posts a bamboo um, floor and then posts with a roof, no walls. And my commitment in this retreat wasn't so much to the particulars of any technique or any particular hours in the day of meditation. My commitment for this retreat was the platform. So I decided to just stay on the platform. So I would go down for one meal a day to use the bathroom, of course, (laughs) and to take a bath in the river. That was all. The rest of the time was on the platform. 
And what I realized was that I wasn't alone. I shared that platform. Most quick, first, first of all, I noticed that I shared it with two large snakes. <laughs> but I also shared it with flies, with mosquitoes, with spiders. Birds would fly straight through. And since there were no walls, I shared it with the wind and with the rain. And in the night, I shared it with the moon. And I began to feel not so much that I was spending time alone, which had been my intention, but instead that I was actually part of a living and vibrant community. A community that recognized my presence and would slightly alter their routines to accommodate where I had put my mat and where, where I was doing the walking meditation. I also accommodated their routines, particularly the snakes, as soon as I figured out where they liked to hang out. Sometimes we go into nature, we set aside the busyness of our work day and spend some time in nature, perhaps taking a walk in the hills or going camping or hiking. And the animals that we meet know us. To some extent, they recognize us, accommodate us. I was just walking over um, Sawyer Camp Trail. Does anybody walk along that Sawyer Camp Trail? It's quite pleasant. You can see the water. And, um, anyway, I was walking along Sawyer Camp Trail, and it was dusk. And just, oh gosh, maybe three, four meters away, there was this beautiful deer, these antlers munching away. And it looked like it was eating poison oak. I didn't know they ate poison oak. Um, but anyway, just looked up, checked me out, and went back to eating very clearly aware of my presence, and yet they don't seem to be very afraid of people. On solitary retreats, we specifically take time to explore this quality of being alone, to explore seclusion, viveka. But we also have time and opportunities in our daily life to explore this. With retirement, we can explore who we are without the structure of work. When we move from one city to another, we can explore who we are and how we're known without the familiar routine. Um, If a member of our household, perhaps a, a, a child who's grown and goes off to college, we can explore who we are without the familiar sounds of the children in the house. When there's a divorce, we can explore what is our social identity when we're not in a couple formation. Who are we then? When there's a death, either in the family or even with a pet, we can explore who are we now that there's that empty space in the house. When we're alone, we meet ourselves. We meet ourselves being ourselves. But usually we're so busy meeting other people that we rarely meet ourselves as we are. And as we meet ourselves, we can see to what extent we can remain simply present in our beingness as things change, as children grow up and leave the house, as jobs come to an end or we become relo- we relocate to different places as marriages end as relationships forms and people part 
Solitude implies a willingness to be ourselves and to be ourselves without that steady feedback from other people confirming who we think we are, confirming our social role and our social identity. This willingness to stand alone is a kind of integrity with our simple presence of being. It doesn't require a rejection of community, but rather a willingness to explore a relationship to ourselves in a direct and honest way. Even when we're interacting with friends, we may not get the affirmation, the support, and the confirmation of ourselves that we're looking for in the communication. So we need to consider, do we depend upon that feedback from friends just to feel okay about ourselves, to know who we are? Or can we abide independent, equanimous, confident with ourselves as we are in the world so that we bring that confidence and that presence into a relationship? Some years ago, I... um, I had, I still have this friend, uh, but at that, this point it was about a 10-year friendship. And I called periodically, as I do. But for some reason, the friend didn't call me back. And I had no idea why she didn't call me back, because usually she would return my phone calls. So I would just wait a week or so and then give another call and then no return phone call. And wait another week or so and give a call and another return phone call, because... And it was very odd, I thought, that that there weren't calls coming back. Without the benefit of communication, since there wasn't a call that said, I'm out of town, or I'm angry at you, or don't bug me, or I need space, or whatever, there was no benefit of communication. I only had my own mind to see what was happening. I had to see how did I relate to this break of communication, this aloneness. Did I fill it with discomfort? of suddenly not knowing where I stood or not knowing what was happening with her. And I saw a kind of sequence that I went through. And first, I just assumed that she was busy. So fine. So then after a couple of months, I worried that she might be ill, that something seriously might be wrong, that something might have happened. And then after another couple of months, Anxiety developed that maybe I had done something to offend her. Maybe she didn't want to be my friend. But I couldn't think of what it was because we weren't talking. (laughs) Then, so I'd gone through this certain just ease of of figuring busy, sort of uh, a kind of explanation or excuse, then worried, then anxiety, and then doubt arose in that space a few months later. And I concluded... Maybe she never really thought of me as a friend. So then doubt had happened. All of these were speculations. That was the anxiety of the mind going through an unmindful process, a self-preoccupied process, just speculations, fabrications of my mind that were not based on any information at all. And it was interesting to watch the sequence and to know that I had no information to base these opinions upon. They were just developed out of a discomfort with being alone. 
It wasn't based on anything real. It was nothing but mental proliferation that filled that discomfort of loneliness, that lack of ease of being alone. And I think this kind of sequence often happens when we're uncomfortable and when we're not allowing ourselves to just be mindful of that discomfort, to be mindful of that solitude or that aloneness. We fill that gap, we fill that space with wondering and pondering, with justifying and judging, with anxiety and worry, with fantasizing, fantasizing and planning. And then we can tie ourselves up into emotional knots over things that we actually know nothing about. Basically, we make up a story. And it doesn't matter if the story is accurate or not because we can then live in contact with the story rather than in contact with the discomfort of loneliness. Now, being alone often implies being out of social contact. But very often it can just imply being out of the expected or desired social contact. When I was in college one summer, um, I went with a girlfriend and we took uh, backpacks and um, I wanted to explore New England. So we went to New England and took buses and trains all over New England. And it was great fun, but what commonly happened is as we would get to, say, a bus, um, people would ask us, like the bus drivers, or people would say, are you alone? Now, we were obviously together, but we weren't with a man. And so they assumed, they would say, are you alone? When I was in India one of the very common questions that people would ask again on trains or whenever I met people or children or anyone is they would ask, first, which country? Okay, America. So that was the The second question would be, are you one person or two? (laughs) That's how they would say it. Meaning, of course, single or married. People like to know to what group we belong Who are we associated with? Because those associations define who we are and what the quality of our interaction will be. So when we're not defined by those interactions, when we're not defined by those roles, by those expectations or those stereotypes, when we're alone, do we invite ourselves to have this experience of aloneness? Sometimes we may not be in the room with anybody, but we're still not allowing ourselves to be in touch with and connected with the quality of aloneness. We're not actually in a relationship with ourselves. We may even be experiencing ourselves through another, even when that other isn't present. We may be going for a walk alone, seeing a flower, and instead of experiencing the flower, telling ourselves about who we're going to tell that flower to, tell that we saw that flower. We might be doing a project talking out loud as though somebody is in the room listening to it. We might still be associating all of our activities and who we are through a projected or fantasy relationship that isn't, isn't actually present. 
Sometimes this is a habitual movement that's called mana or conceit. It's a movement of the comparing mind that creates a sense of self through comparing ourselves with others, regularly affirming I am this by comparing ourselves to another. Those dialogues within our minds, the internal dialogue that sometimes can be incessant or the narrating of our experience to another can indicate this preoccupation with creating a sense of ourselves. Why not let those dialogues rest and just open to the experience of solitude, whatever it might be? to drop into the solitude and to rest in that, to rest at ease in the depths of quiet and in the depths of seclusion. Knowing viveka, opening to seclusion, gives us the chance to discover a quality of ease in our aloneness because there's tremendous value in being alone and opening to that aspect of life. The Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree alone and he often recommended his disciples to sit alone, to go into seclusion. There are many, many, many suttas where there's a particular phrase where he says, a practitioner resorts to a secluded resting place, the forest, the root of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, a heap of straw. It doesn't say the forest refuge, but we can add that in. (laughs) I think um, there's a style of practice. Perhaps we don't so often go to the heap of straw or the charnel ground. But I think the style of practice that we do engage in here is we take periods of time for daily practice, bringing the Dharma and mindfulness into our active life, into our work, into our families, into how we shop and how we drive and how we live. And there are also times where we take time for retreat. We take time for seclusion. And we usually each decide for ourselves, given the various commitments and obligations that we have in our daily life, to assess, well, how much time goes into each category of active engagements or solitude and solitary practice or retreat practice. Many people will find that they can do, say, one retreat a quarter. And we'll just schedule it. Say, okay, I know I can take off a couple of weekends and a couple of one weeks and schedule one retreat a quarter. Some people are retired and have more time and can do a retreat a month or do a retreat every other month. Some people have children at home and have much more obligations and find that it's sufficient or it's what they can handle to do one retreat a year. I don't think it matters so much how many we do. We have to find what's appropriate to the various um, responsibilities that we have. But I do think it's essential that we find a relationship to the solitude as well as the dharma, as well as the active engagement in our busy life. For myself, for about the last 10 years, I've had a commitment to do either two or three months each year in in practice. Not necessarily consecutively. 
That can be a lot of weekends <laughs> in a year. But to do generally three, but my minimum commitment was two each year. But I think we each have to find for ourselves what works with those obligations that we all have. And yet, some things we do have to do alone. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin, a wise and foolish Sufi saint, who it was said that Mullah Nasruddin was at a soccer game. And he was with a friend at a soccer game. And you know, at a soccer game, they get really into it, and they're yelling and yelling and cheering on. And after they'd been cheering and yelling for some time, all afternoon, I suppose, um, Mullah was feeling quite thirsty. And so he said to his friend, I'm going to go get a drink of water. And the friend said, would you get me a drink also? And Mullah returned a short time later, but he told his friend, that after I had drunk the water for myself, I was no longer thirsty for your drink. Some things we have to do ourselves. So I'd like to sit for the last five minutes and um, pose during the silence uh, just a few questions for your reflection. Just settle in and open to the experience of yourself as you are. Feel the body as it is, just as it is, perhaps hot or cold. perhaps tense or relaxed. Feel the mind as it is. Is it calm and tranquil? Or is it agitated and restless? What qualities of mind feel strong right now? And as you let the attention rest in the experience of breathing, just Gently feeling the body breathing, letting the mind rest into that experience. 
ask yourself, do I feel comfortable with myself as I am? Do I enjoy the the time that I spend with myself? Do I enjoy my own company? When I have some time alone, what would I most like to do with that time? What does it mean to be a friend to myself? What must be done alone?
Well, I'd like to thank you all for coming and have a lovely Sunday. <laughs>